nothing comes to mind about Psalm 64 originally. But looking back upon it, I, I, I was reminded how rich this is, how much that is there. And let's begin reading from the New American Standard Bible. For the choir director, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword and aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, we are ready with a well-conceived plot, for the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded. They will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake their head. Then all men will fear. And they will declare the work of God. And will consider what he has done. The righteous man will be glad in the Lord. And will take refuge in him. And all the upright in heart will glory. There is so much going on here. And I hope I can adequately convey this in a way that will be understandable and helpful to all of us. I gave an outline here that in the first two verses, David pleads for help. And then he spends much of the psalm describing the enemy. You remember Psalm 63 had a description of the enemy, but it came at the very end after he had talked of his trust in God. And after he talked of his trust in God, he touches upon the enemy uh, at the very end. This psalm is kind of in a different direction. It ends out at the same point. It ends out exactly the same point, but, but it has much to say about the enemy. And then finally in verses 7 through 10, God will set things straight. But verse 1, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hear my voice. He's begging God to hear his voice, listen to his cry, um, and um, he said, preserve me from the dread of the enemy. Now, the particular word that is translated dread, this word was used, for example, of how the Canaanites, were going to dread the Israelites when they entered the land of Canaan in Exodus 15 and verse 16. It is used also in uh, some of the passages in Chronicles where Israel 
uh, defeated their enemies and a great dread fell upon those enemies. And now David is praying, preserve my life from this type of immobilizing, demoralizing fear which characterizes many people's attitude toward their enemies. Hear my voice, hear my voice, O God, and preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Preserve my life. And then he says, hide me in the secret counsel. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity. He is begging God to hide him. Hide him. David's prayer is that God will hear his prayer and that God will hide him. Those are the only specific requests he makes of God in this prayer. And we've seen other references in the Psalms to God hiding David. In Psalm 17, Psalm 17 verse 8, the Bible says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 25. Psalm 25 and verse... Excuse me, 27 verse 5. 27 verse 5. The Bible says, For the day of trouble he will conceal me in the tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. Psalm 27, 5. And then also in Psalm 31, verse 20, you see this same kind of idea. You hide them in the secret places of your presence from the conspiracies of men. This is asking God to do what he did in each of these passages. Hide me from those who are my enemies. Hide me, protect me, shield me, conceal me. Recently, um, a man passed away. He was uh, in his early 90s. I don't know his whole name, but he went by the name Brother Andrew. He spent much of his life sneaking Bibles into communist nations. And I can remember being told of his story. And one of the things that he would pray, he, he got to the border and sometimes the car in front of him was checked for two hours. Every detail about that car. And then they waved him on. But he prayed, often when he got to the checkpoint, Oh Lord, you have made blind eyes see. Make seeing eyes blind. And David is in effect asking the same thing. Hide me from their plots, their plans, their conspiracies. 
Hide me, O Lord, from them. Now, I want to tell you a couple of times that this word is used that really serve as good illustrations of hiding. Do you remember who was the only queen of Judah? She shouldn't have been queen. She wasn't of the line of David, but she seized the throne, and her name was Athaliah. Athaliah, very good. And you remember that she was killing all the descendants of David, and they took the baby Joash, and they hid him. Same word, same word. They hid Joash from Athaliah and her attempts to kill him. Another time, do you remember when Jeremiah has the scroll read? In Jeremiah 36, he writes the scroll. He was prevented from going to the temple. Baruch goes to the scroll, to the temple. He reads the scroll. Some of the leaders were sympathetic to what Jeremiah wrote and what Baruch read. And they said, uh, to uh, Baruch, you and Jeremiah go hide yourselves. In Jeremiah 36, verse 19. And this, you remember, was when King Jehoiakim took the scroll and cut it apart with a knife and threw it in the fire. And then the Bible says, they said, you go hide yourself. In Jeremiah 36, verse 26, the Bible says, the Lord hid them. Doesn't emphasize the human agency. It emphasized God's part in that. God hid them from Jehoiakim and did not let him, Jehoiakim, get his clutches on them. And David is asking the same thing. Hide me in the secret, hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers. From, from the tumult of those who do iniquity. Hide me from them. Now, he goes on after that first two verses to give a description of these wicked people. In verse 3, he said, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword and aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless suddenly they shoot at him and they do not fear so their tongue is a sword their speech are arrows this is a very dramatic way to describe the damage the tongue can do and how weaponized our words can be Sharpen their tongue like a sword. One writer that I was reading made reference to Proverbs 16, verses 27 and 28. It says, a worthless man digs up evil while his lips are a scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. It's Proverbs 16, verses 27 and 28. And what that says, as the writer pointed out, it doesn't take a great deal of talent 
skill or ability to turn your tongue into a weapon. This can be done by the lowest of men, by worthless people, by perverse men. They are guilty of sharpening their tongue like a sword and aiming bitter speech as an arrow. Anyone can use their tongue to do great damage. Which do you think takes the most skill? To train a person in work of destruction or construction? Now, if you're going to destroy something right, I know it takes a certain level of skill, but it doesn't take the level of skill that construction takes. And it takes a whole lot more for us to sharpen our tongue for the purpose of God's glory and others' good than it does to sharpen them like a sword and an arrow to shoot at others. Now, I want to make several points because this psalm is full of this kind of thing. Of words that appear more than one time and somehow gives us great significance. And I want you, if you don't understand, because I want to explain it clearly, you know, feel free to ask. Now, the word in the New American Standard, it says they shoot from concealment. They shoot from concealment. How, what do your other translations have that New American Standard has from concealment? This is verse 4 that we're talking about. What do your other translations have? This one says they shoot in secret. In secret. In secret. Anything else that's significantly different? From ambush. From ambush. Yes, I knew someone had that. From ambush. But, you get, you, everybody knows what word we're talking about. You're looking at the text, you know what word we're talking about. Okay? This is from the same root word as the word hide in verse 2. Okay, now what point can we make of that? God, David is asking God to hide him. The wicked person thinks he's hidden. He thinks he's hidden and he feels free to shoot his arrows and to sharpen his tongue and to shoot his arrows. And he is quite confident that no one will call him to account. He will not fear. He thinks he's hidden. He's not asking God to hide him. He thinks he's covered his tracks. And no one will find out. In verse 5, they hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. Hold fast. Um, what do your translations have there besides hold fast? At the, at the beginning of verse 5. I have, they encourage themselves. Encourage themselves, okay. Encourage themselves. But again, you see the word. This word could legitimately be translated strengthen. It could be translated like encourage that, that, that Sandy had. It can be translated strengthen. It can be translated encourage. Uh, it, is, it can be translated harden. 
This is part of Hezekiah's day. Hezekiah's day means the Lord strengthens, the Lord hardens. It's part of Ezekiel's day. The one that God strengthens or God hardens. It's that word. But here they are strengthening themselves, encouraging themselves, not in a good purpose, but in an evil purpose. They hold fast, they, they encourage themselves to an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. Again, they think they're hidden. They talk of laying snares secretly. And they say, who can see? Now we're going to find there's going to be an answer to that question later. But right now they're saying, who can see them? Who can see us? Who, who, who's, going to, who, who's going to see what we are doing? Um, a lot of times the book of Psalms records the book of Psalms records the words of the wicked and I think that this is what's being done at the end of this as the wicked said who can see who can see them And, and sometimes in the Psalms we're introduced to the thoughts, to the questions that the wicked are asking themselves. Those are some passages where you see that. Those are all passages from the Psalms. And, and here they're, they're asking who can see. In verse 6, they devise injustices. We are ready with a well-conceived plot for the inward thought of the hearts of man, the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. So they devise injustice. They devise injustice. They scheme a scheme. Maybe your translations have. But they say in verse 6, they say, we are ready. We are ready. Now, what have your translations have there? Because this can be translated a lot of ways. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Okay. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. A shrewd <clears throat> Easier for Gary to say than me. We, Mine says they search out iniquities. Okay. It's like they're looking for any problems. Yes, they're looking looking for for any problems. Um, devise. It, it says uh, it says that they devise injustices in the next. It's a, it says devise there too. Perfect plan. Perfect plan. Okay. A couple of you mentioned the word perfect. And, and, and they have... A couple other things. The okay. ESV says we have accomplished a diligent search. And I've got a New American Standard, but I've got a footnote for the word ready. It says literally complete. Complete. Okay. The, the word complete. Isaiah, did you have a comment? Okay. What was that? Okay. Okay. 
The word here translated, we have perfected, or this perfect plan already, or complete, as David called it. And some of, you, some of the rest of you may say some things similar. This is, this word in verse 6 is the verb form of the word translated blameless in verse 4. They were attacking the blameless, but they said, we've come up with the most blameless plan. Perfect plan. You know, they are so enamored with their plots to bring down the wicked, but it is the people that they are trying to attack who are the perfected, the perfected ones, the completed ones, the mature ones, the blameless ones. They are the ones they're seeking to attack. There are all kinds of these word plays all throughout this particular psalm contrasting these wicked people with the righteous or the wicked people with what God is doing. Did I make that play the point easy enough to follow? Um, what questions do you have right there or ideas that you have? David? The wicked always think they have the perfect plot. Yes, the wicked think they do have the perfect plot. It is, it is amazing. Sometimes I exercise and I will watch um, some kind of a there's that mystery channel that will have this past events and somebody has Kills. This person ends up dead. Lo and behold, it's the husband who was having an affair with you know, several women. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought it? Or, or some, and you know, but, but I am just amazed at people who commit such foolish and stupid crimes and think they're going to get away with it. It's just, it is absolutely mind-boggling to me. And here, they are so enamored with how perfect their plan is and how sure the demise of the righteous is. And what a good plan they've laid. And, and we'll see God's answer is, is dramatic. And, and I want you to see, too, how so many of the words in this last section, which emphasized God is going to set things right, how many of these things deal with things that the wicked have said? Okay? Now let's start right away here in verse, in verse 7. He says... God will shoot at them with an arrow. God will shoot. Well, this particular word, shoot, was used twice in verse 4. In verse 4, it was the wicked who was shooting in secret at the blameless. 
They are shooting at him and they're not being afraid. The wicked are shooting at the blameless and God is shooting at them. Who is the better archer? God is always going to win that battle. God is pictured in Psalm 7, verses 12 and 13, as shooting at the wicked. Psalm 7, 12 and 13. If a man does not repent, he, I think a reference to God, will sharpen his sword, bend his bow, and make it ready. He is also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. God makes his arrows fiery shafts. God is going to shoot at them with an arrow. So not, not only the word shoot, but the word arrow. Again, going back to verse 3, it says, they have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They have aimed bitter speech as their arrow. The wicked are described as aiming their arrows at the righteous. And God is shooting his arrows at them. Their hope in verse 4, or, or their, their desire was for a sudden attack. In verse 4. In verse 4, the wicked are going to attack suddenly. They're going to shoot from concealment. But notice in verse 7, that same word is used. Suddenly, they will be wounded. So, there have been three words. Three words here describing what God is going to do when he comes to set things right, which have been prominent in this psalm to this point. The word shoot, the word arrow, the word suddenly. All of these have been prominent in the text, but now God is doing to the wicked the thing that they tried to do to others. In, in verse 8, God will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. 64, 64 verse 8, their own tongue is against them. Notice in verse 3, they have sharpened their tongue. So everything that the wicked uses against the righteous ends up turning against them. God uses it against them. And, and what do we call when we, we have an idea of the things that others try to do evil or wickedly to others that ultimately that comes back to them. Faith, what, what would you call that? Lex talionis, that's right, is lex talionis, that God judges them and punishes them in a way similar to what they sought to do to others. <clears throat> to others, excuse me. Verse 8. All who see them will shake the head. Remember back in verse 5? In verse 5, they said, who will see? Now everyone who sees is going to shake their head in derision, in mockery. How foolish. 
Jewish these people were. All who see them will shake the head. And notice in verse 9, then all men will fear and they will declare the work of God. I'm going to go up here, make sure people can see, I hope you can see. All men will fear. Remember back in verse 4, this word was used to say that they shoot at the blameless and the righteous, but the wicked in verse 4 have no fear. They had no fear. And now, everyone who sees what has happened to the wicked, when they see their own devices being used against them, the Bible says, this will be a cause for all men to fear. Those who refuse to fear God will be a reason that others will fear him when they experience his judgment. And in verse 9, they will declare the work of God. They will declare the work of God. Now that particular word work is used in verse 2 when it describes the wicked as doing they do iniquity. They do iniquity. And now this same root word is used to describe the work of God. All men will fear. They will all declare the work of God. They will consider what he has done. They will contemplate it. They will think about God's work. They will think about how God brings judgment and it says in verse 10, the text says in verse 10, the righteous will be glad in the Lord and will take refuge in him and all the upright in heart will glory. Do you notice anything about uh, the name of God in verse 10? Yeah, it is the Lord in all capitals, the Hebrew term Yahweh. And it's the only time... In Psalm, 7, Psalm 60 through 67, this term is used. The only time this term is used. Now, did you have any questions about that? David? Well, one thing I thought was interesting, you know, it talks about the, the wicked shooting, but it never says they hit. Yes. But then when God shoots, suddenly they will be wounded. Yes. When he shoots... He hits the target. God hits the target. God hits the target. The same kind of idea, David, a couple of writers expressed this way. One commentary I was looking at said this, it took ten lines to describe the scheming of the wicked, but God dispatches of them in only three. So they're, you know, they're making their plans and their plots, and, and, and but God gets rid of them much more quickly than that. Sarah? So the, the righteous man will be glad in the Lord will take refuge in him. And that is a contrast or an answer, depending on how you think of it. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. I mean, when you 
when you are in that paralyzing fear or the dread of what's going to happen, there's not a whole lot of joy in your life. I mean, if you're hiding in the back of a cave and, and all of that. Yes. Or whatever it is. So that. You're very right. It, the psalm moves from a cry to aid to praise. It starts out with hear me in my complaint, preserve my life, but it ends on a note of being glad, of glorying, taking refuge. So, so yes, and it really encompasses the whole psalm. And, you know, what we've talked about here are times when the same words are used. There are a lot of other things in this psalm. For example, do you know the word here in Hebrew is very close to the word of rejoicing and being glad in, in the way it's pronounced. And so some say that this kind of is an inclusion, like Sarah is talking about. The first verse talks about begging God to hear, and he uses a, a word that sounds so similar to that in verse 10 to talk about being glad in the Lord. So I, I think there are a lot of little interesting things like that in the psalm. Yes? I think there's so much in this psalm to warn us about being that kind of person. In yes. uh, Proverbs 6, uh, uh, 18 through 23, these, almost everything he mentions there that God hates are characteristic of these people. Yeah. Yet at the same time, to be on the other side, there is confidence that God is going to bring judgment on those people. Yes, yes. Um, exactly. This psalm, like much of the Bible, and, and by the way, I, I'll have to say, I want you to think about this. It is amazing to me how the Bible keeps coming back to some of the same themes over and over and over. And one of the things I think we see so often in Scripture and so often in the Psalms is that the righteous will have reason to be glad and rejoice and the wicked will be brought down. I mean, it just, it's repeated over and over in Scripture. And that is the emphasis, that is the stress right here in, in this text as well. Now, I would say it's not always self-evident that's true just by looking at our world. Again, to proclaim that and to live in light of it demands that we are seeing the world from God's perspective. We live by transcendent, as one writer said, we live by transcendent, transcendent values. And we live in light of the end. And because of that, we see all these events in the moment, in time, differently than the wicked man. Anne and Marie.
It's really hard sometimes to say, is he reflecting back on a past experience when he describes his deliverance? Is he just looking at it through the lens of other times that God's given him deliverance or what he expects as the, to be the case? Um, it, it's, it's hard to know. Um, if you notice, if you look at the New American Standard very closely, and, and I'm not saying any translation's perfect in this, but you have a lot of the verbs in verses three through six, like in present or past tense, while a lot of things in verse seven through 10 are future tense. And generally the Hebrew perfect is considered more closely aligned with the present and the past and the imperfect considered more closely aligned with the future. But as far as where David is in real time when he utters that psalm, I, I can't say. Or what verse he's living at that moment, it's hard to say. There was one thing I realized I didn't say much about and I might be better off letting it go because it's a difficult verse. But that statement in verse 6 intrigues me when it says at the end, for the inward thought and the heart of a man are deep. And that has been taken different ways. You see what I'm talking about in verse 6, latter part of verse 6. The inward thought and the heart of man are deep. Um, they One writer said they are congratulating themselves on what deep thinkers they are. Which, sometimes the wicked do this. Um, it could be a statement that they think they've hidden their wickedness deep down in their heart. Um, instead of having the joy, joy, joy deep down in their heart. They've got these inward plots and plans deep down in their heart and maybe that adds to the thought that their wickedness is not going to be discovered. But another writer said this, and I thought this was interesting. Man's inhumanity to man requires a depth of understanding which strains the human capacity of comprehension. To look through history and to see how men have manifest the wickedness of their heart and their treatment to their fellow man is, is horrible. Uh, that this describes a manifestation of the depth of understanding which it requires to understand man's capacity for evil is beyond our comprehension. Strange human comprehension is the, is the basic idea. I, I don't know what's right. Bob?
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And thinking that their prosperity in that psalm will just continue indefinitely. Never going to be an end to it. Never going to be uh, Psalm 49 11 was the passion problem. I'm having a hard time remembering where the verse is. I mean, it talks about our eye when it's full of light, it's good, but when it's full of darkness, how Mm-hmm. Is that kind of a parallel process? Um, well, first of all, find, Jesus uses that in Matthew 6, among other places. Um, in Matthew 6, 22 and 23. Um, the eye is the lamp of the body, so then the eye is clear, the whole body is full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In context, I do think if you want to make a connection, uh, that verse does tie a lot with the verse that Bob just mentioned in Psalm 49, 11, because that's dealing with our attitude to riches and wealth and don't store up riches on treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. And he talks about your eye being bad and your eye being good. And, and I think part of that distinction would be whether we lay up treasures here or whether we lay up treasures in heaven. And that's the same thing Psalm 49 is talking about. Psalm, um, Psalm 49 was stressing more their prosperity to continue forever. While Psalm 64 they simply think that no one will ever catch them in their evil deeds. It's, it's, that's a little bit more the overall stress. But, but it's all tied idea, tied together. Um, is it possible that in verse 6 the quote is like all of the latter half? We are ready with a well-conceived thought. For the inward thought and the heart of a man are deep, end quote. I mean, they're congratulating themselves on their plot. Yeah, you know. yeah. Nobody knows what we're thinking. It's yeah. Deep. Yes. I, I, think it, I think it could be. Yes, it could all be interconnected. And always those lines in front of it help us somehow in interpreting it. Yes, Emory. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When you f- see the final picture of God's judgment on the wicked, uh, when you see that, and you see that the righteous, the, the unrighteous has never been secure, and that righteousness is the proper path. I mean, just leads people to to stand in awe of God, to fear Him. As we do see. So that's right. Can I make a comment? Yes. Uh Um, I'm reading this. And as if they're. It says they search. I've got the King James Version. Uh They search out their iniquities. Meaning they're searching out any problem. Now what verse are you reading? 
Beg your pardon? What verse is that? It's six. Okay. They search out iniquities. Meaning, in my mind, that means they're searching for any problems with their evil plan. They accomplish, accomplish a diligent search. Means they really looked hard for any problems with their plan. Both the inward thought of every one of them and the heart is deep. The heart could mean the mind, could it not? Oh, well, basically, yes. The heart would, you know, as the Bible says, and uh, I'm just trying to get this board clean. Proverbs 23, 7. As a man thinks in his heart. Heart was viewed as the, the center of thought. Um, and often like in the New Testament, um, it was, you know, like the Bible talks about, if you have a King James, I think it still uses the term bowels of compassion. Because that was considered the heart of our emotion. Uh, and... Um, so, as far as, yes, they're talking about what they're thinking and their and, thoughts and, and their they, plans. They have all kinds of ideas and they want to make sure they got everything. Yeah, and they, and they, they think they've covered all their tracks yeah. and that they will escape. Notice. And yet, 3,000 years later, we're reading this psalm and we're talking about them. So, they haven't gotten away. All have seen. says they plot injustice and say, we have devised a perfect plan. Surely the human mind and heart are cunning. Yes, yes. You know, they make it part of the words of the wicked. May well be. It's hard to interpret. Now, to our final part. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, they have yeah, they they've they've found the the greatest plan. They've 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 searched, they've devised the perfect crime. How many times have you heard that expression? Perfect crime. And and usually the perfect crime gets called. Um how would you say this psalm speaks of Jesus? The psalm, I think, illustrates the life of Jesus. Okay. In, it was, I agree with you, but what would be some specifics? Well, uh, Jesus is doing everything right. They're sneaking around, uh, uh, saying things about him, doing things yeah. to him, uh, trying to enter him in every way. Uh, but you look at everything that Jesus does is to try to help them. And in the end, the, the, the whole thing completely surprises even the devil. Yes. Uh, I, I, guess we, uh, I guess we take it that he was surprised. Uh, but, but yes, I mean, um, you're, I, I agree with you. I mean, so much of this sounds like what he experienced. Because a lot of this just talks about the enemy... Planning, um, plotting, slandering. And that's exactly what we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus experienced. 
And so the way we could say that is everything that David experiences in Psalms 54, verses 3 through 6, everything David experienced finds deeper fulfillment in Jesus. One of the passages is that I think of along this line. Mark 3, verses 1 through 6. Jesus comes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. There's a man with a withered hand. This man with a withered hand, they set him in front of Jesus. They're watching closely to see if he would heal. Jesus says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy? They don't make any answer. And Jesus, moved with anger, tells the man to come forward. He says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored. And immediately, the Pharisees go out and begin plotting his destruction. Immediately, they begin plotting his destruction. If David felt that he experienced these words and that he lived these words and that people were using their tongues as weapons against him, how much more would his greater son, David, live these things? He would be the victim of all of these. And just like talking about John the Baptist on Sunday morning, I, I read these sufferers in the Bible and I think, could I have endured what they endured? And, and I sympathize with them. And sometimes we even ask, why God? And the Psalms ask that. Why? But look at what God has suffered for us. Look at what he has gone through to save us. Look at all he experienced. And, and one of the phrases that he uses here, um, one of the phrases the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text uses, it uses in verse 2 the term multitude to describe his enemy. David uses that term. Now, sometimes in the New Testament, this describes people who follow Jesus. But it also describes that multitude of Jewish leaders who had Jesus over Pilate in Luke 23 and verse 1. The wicked shoot, they shoot at the blameless. They shoot at the blameless in verse 4. That term that's used there in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used to describe Jesus. In Acts 3.14, Acts 7.52, Acts 22.14, the ultimate example of one who is blameless and righteous, who was shot at by the wicked, is Jesus. Excuse me. That point fits with verse 10. With the righteous. I'm sorry. That's the righteous. The blameless are two other verses. The blameless of verse 4. That is Hebrews 9.14, which talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. 
being blameless in 1 Peter 1.19 as of a lamb without spot and blemish. 1 Peter 1.18-19. So, mark that out. Attribute that to a scribal mistake. That was my, was my fault. Um, but but we, we could go on with this. But a couple of things that really catch my attention. When Jesus cries out in verse 1, here, the word that was used to translate that here is not the most common word for here in the New Testament, but I'll tell you where it is used. It's used in Hebrews 5, 7, when he offered up strong crying and tears and he was heard. Hear my voice, David cries. And Jesus cried out. And he was heard. But the cry is of David, preserve my life. Preserve my life. Rescue my life. David was rescued, was Jesus. Not immediately. But the word that is used here in the Greek translation for preserve or rescue is used in Galatians 1 verse 4 to talk about how Jesus died for us to rescue us from this present evil age. He cried out and was heard, and though he was not rescued or preserved from death, through his death, he rescued and preserved us and opened the door of salvation. And you also see that idea in verse 8, that as Jesus died on the cross, even though he was righteous, and he was blameless, which I didn't spell correctly. They wagged their heads at him. It is just amazing to me how when we just look for it a little, Jesus is all over the book of Psalms. He's all over it, John. In verse. Absolutely. All of history is leading to Psalm 64, 7 through 10 and Philippians 2, 9 through 11. It's all history is leading that way that there will be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, but all will, will, will see his work and fear him. So. When, I, when I read that, I was thinking of the soldier was there and, and saw how he died and said, surely this was the son of 
son of God, this son of God, was <coughs> impressed by yeah. what happened. The same concept that it's not just you know the friendly Jews, yeah, or, or the followers who are going to be impressed. But it's a centurion. It's a centurion there. You know, that, that prayer I mentioned before. Oh Lord, you've made blind eyes see, make seen eyes blind. In a sense, we see that all through the ministry of Jesus. Those who seem to see are actually blind. And those who seem to be blind can see. And Jesus said basically that when he opened up the eyes of the blind man in John 9, 39. He said that. Now, here is this blind man. And they're saying, the religious leaders are saying Jesus is a sinner. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And he said, you say he's a sinner, but God doesn't hear sinners. But if any be a worshiper of him and does his will, him he hears it. I mean, he, he used him since the beginning of the world. No one's opened the eyes of the blind. And you don't know where he's from. That blind man saw while those that claimed to be seen were blind. Yeah, a couple of things that stuck out to me. In verse 2, you hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers. Jesus was hidden in Egypt mm-hmm. away from yes. Herod when he tried to have him put to death by mm-hmm. putting to death all the, the, the baby boys. That's a good point. I, that wasn't the one. The one I was thinking of as reading this was the time. Remember, he said, well, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago in the sermon. He was at his hometown synagogue at Nazareth, and they were going to throw him off the hill in Luke 4. And he just walks through their midst. But you're right. I mean, God hides him in Egypt. God hides him a number of times till his hour is come. And then there would be no hiding. But all would see as he is shamefully treated, publicly shamefully treated in this way. And then the other thing, you know, verse 6, you know, the Jewish leaders, they thought they had the perfect plot. And they got the Romans to put him to death. Yes. And if the grave could have held him, it would have been. Yeah, yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, very good, very good thoughts, people. Very good thoughts. And see, I, I I wait till after this to record the podcast to incorporate things that are said. So, Sarah, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but talking about the tongue and how they how they sharpened it into a weapon and, and all of that, and all of the times when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the teachers all came to him and it was always a battle of words and wits and I mean none of them ever came up and said hey let's go you know three rounds rounds in the boxing ring or something it was always about the words yes that's right that learning and rhetoric exactly yes yes yeah good way to say it but yes exactly right exactly right I really like the triplet in verse 10 where you see the righteous will be glad, they will take refuge, and they will glory in the Lord. Yeah, 
He has said he is. That he is. That he is good. Just like we do through the resurrection of Christ. E- exactly. I mean, through all God has done, through His death and resurrection, through rescuing us from sin, that we can be glad, take refuge, and glory in Him. Why should we fear what man can do to us? Yes, and God help us remember that when we face what He faced. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. It, it, it is beautiful to think that because these kind of lines are used in Romans 3, kind of lines that are used here in Psalm 64 are used in Romans 3 to say we've all sinned. And yet God has provided the salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus as well. But I appreciate your thoughts. They're very good uh, did, did we get that song, John? Did you get the song earlier? Or Brad, Brad had laid one up there, Isaiah, if you want to. Um, um, but we are thankful that you're here, and he'll get that in just a moment. And um, uh, Craig, would you want to lead us in 